Hello, and welcome to the all-new Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles, literary director here at the bookshop. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to spend even more of 2022 at Kilometre Zero in Paris, you can now subscribe for just three euros a month. For that, you'll get regular bonus episodes, hand-picked classic interviews from our archives, as well as early access to complete chapters from friends of Shakespeare and Company, Read Ulysses. You can now sign up directly in Apple Podcasts or for users of all other podcast apps through Patreon. Links to both are available in the show notes. All money raised through these subscriptions goes to supporting Friends of Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop's non-profit, created to fund our non-commercial activities, from the Upstairs Reading Library to the Rights in Residence programme to our charitable collaborations and our free events. We're very grateful for your support. For those of you who don't know George Saunders's work, he's the author of nine books, including the novel Lincoln in the Bardo, which won the 2017 Man Booker Prize. It was with the short story, however, that George Saunders made his name, through four extraordinary and extraordinarily idiosyncratic collections. Civil War Lad in Bad Decline, Pastoralia, In Persuasion Nation and Tenth of December, which was a finalist for the National Book Award and won the inaugural Folio Prize. George Saunders has received MacArthur and Guggenheim Fellowships and the Penn Malamud Prize for Excellence in the Short Story, and was recently elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. In 2013, he was named one of the world's 100 most influential people by Time magazine. Now he's back with A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, a book which, as you will hear, is somewhat difficult to define. Drawing on 20 years of teaching the Russian short story at Syracuse University, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain guides readers and writers through seven classic Russian short stories by four of its greatest writers, Chekhov, Turgenev, Tolstoy and Gogol. By employing the kind of literary alchemy that readers have come to expect from George Saunders's marvellous and compelling fiction, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain becomes not only a book about reading better and writing better, but also living better and loving better. It's truly remarkable and quite unlike anything else I've ever read. I spoke to George Saunders from Shakespeare and Company's Reading Library on Wednesday 17th of February 2021. As it was the first interview we'd ever recorded which the author wasn't physically present in the bookshop, I began by asking him where in the world he was. Sure, I'm in a very glamorous destination which is my basement in um, Oneonta, <laughs> New York. Uh, we're way up in the woods here, so um, this is actually the house where where I wrote Lincoln and the Bardo, so we're way up in the forest. So to get internet, we have to we have a satellite, and then I have to plug into Ethernet. So I'm here in my weight room, basically. Mm-hmm. And, and what's the what's the weather like at the moment? Because I know a lot of the the state is suffering a cold snap. Yeah, it's deeply cold and and uh, snow. So I'm trying to imagine that it's like Doctor Zhivago. That's the way I'm telling myself in my mind to kind of keep my spirits mm-hmm. up. <laughs> yeah. A very appropriate reference for the the conversation we're about to have. Um, I think a lot about your your last visit to the bookstore, which was in um, 2017, to promote Lincoln in the Bardo. Um, and one of the things that really struck me back then was how much you seem to enjoy being on a book tour, which um, which does isn't always the case, I think, for for a lot of writers, particularly when it's a book tour um, of the length of uh, the one that you were on at the time. And I'm just curious before we t- start talking about um, the book itself, how has it been different for you this time promoting the this new book of yours under under COVID conditions. Yeah, it's really been different. I've done everything from this little Zoom station in my basement. And um, it's definitely, you know, I think in a way I, I kind of overdid it the last time because I had done a 10th of December before that and then Lincoln and the Bardo. So I was on the road a lot. And uh, I think I've kind of, I kind of like this. It's, it's, I'm, I'm writing every day, you know, so I, I just finished working today and then came down here. So I think this is a little uh, more sane. But of course, the, you you, you miss mm-hmm. the um, the buzz of it. I think it was even that night in in Paris that was so beautiful, and I, I it almost feels like it's from a, a dream or something. Uh, so you don't quite mm-hmm. get that, but you also don't get the sort of, I guess, the kind of um, less positive parts of that, which is that your I guess your ego doesn't get quite as pumped up, and you don't get kind of distracted and <laughs> and um, jazzed up on yourself. So that, that here, you know, I'll do a, a podcast <laughs> and then go up and have to take the dogs on a walk and empty the garbage. And <laughs> so it's very grounding. <laughs> um, so to talk specifically about a swim in a pond in the rain, which I found a, an absolutely um, remarkable book. Um, 
And yet I've had a little bit of difficulty whenever I've told, told people that I'll be talking to you about it. People have asked me, well, you know, what, what, what is the book? Is it, a, is it a new novel? Is it a short story collection? I'm, no, 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 it's neither of those. And I found myself kind of saying, using the phrase, well, it's not really, but it's kind of quite a lot. So it's kind of, it's, people say, ah, so it's a kind of, it's a critical reader. And I say, well, not really, but, but kind of. And they say, oh, so it's a, a writing guide. And so, eh, not really, but mm-hmm. kind of. It's, it's a literary memoir. So eh, kind of, but, but not really. Um, so I'd be curious to know um, how you would describe the book when, uh, when asked about it. And also, and I think this is a phrase that we'll probably come back to later in our conversation, how the finished product differs from your original conception mm. of the book. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I, usually what I do is I'll enter into a project with kind of a, as small an idea as possible of what it is. And in this case, that was just, I'm going to mm-hmm. try to do a written approximation of this class I've been teaching at Syracuse for 20 years on the Russians. And that, I, I wanted to do, do that just because that class was always so much fun. You know, we have these great students and, um, it was always sort of a surprising thrill to teach that class. You'd, um, it would lay dormant for a couple of years and I'd, uh, you know, get out my notes. And that first class, it would always be uh, really exciting. The, the students really responded to these stories. So that was the first thought was I'm just going to try to sort of like, I don't know about enshrine, you know, but 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 pay tribute to that class or try to leave some trace of it behind. Uh, that was the first thought. But then I always like to leave a lot of room, like say, well, I don't, I don't really know what a book like that is going to look or sound like. And if I do it right, it'll, it'll destabilize my concept of it as I do it. So I think originally I thought it'll just be some, basically my lecture notes a little bit formalized. And then that concept got thrown out of the window when I actually tried to do it. So I'm not sure what it is. I think it's, I mean, really this will sound a little, a little trippy in 1970s, but I really just wanted it to be an experience. So Uh you know, I won't tell you what it is. Come in through the front door with me and we're going to go on a kind of a weird trip together. Uh, And I actually love the idea that at the end, somebody's like, well, what was that exactly? I don't know. That's, you know, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's an interesting choice um, to, to go with the Russians as well, because um, obviously it's, as you said, it's a, it's a course that you've been teaching um, over the last 20 years, but I imagine it's not the, the only um, course you've been teaching, like I assume that you've t- taught the um, American short story writers and perhaps uh, short story writers from from elsewhere in the world. Um, and so I'm curious about, um, you know, maybe maybe you will you will follow up this with uh, with other sort of sim- similarly themed books around uh, around some of the other courses you've taught. But I'm just curious about why you started uh, with with the Russians and particularly these four Russians. Yeah, you know, really, I do teach. I teach an American short stories class. I've taught a class on style. I taught a class on uh, books to film, which is pretty interesting. But the Russian class was always far and away the best one. I, I felt the most comfortable with these writers, and um, it just reading these stories with a group of young writers just it's just magical. I don't know why. I think it's maybe because the stories are pretty simple. Uh, also, they're not really, you know, they're so old that all of mm-hmm. the distracting cultural references are out. They're all obsolete. You know, it's all just snowstorms and yeah. samovars. And so I think that makes it a little bit elemental. It's kind of, um, you know, the, a lot of the objections that a student might make to a story, maybe to a story's politics or even its aesthetics are kind of neutralized because these politics are so old. We don't know what they are anymore. The aesthetics are mm-hmm. all kind of mangled by the fact that they're in translation. So you can't really quibble over the language because we're not actually reading the original language. So somehow it's like reading, um, mm-hmm. you know, in the, in the course of a semester, we'll read 40 stories, but you're like reading 40 platonic little examples of the form. And somehow that, that puts mm-hmm. you in a nice place, you know, to talk about the real bedrock principles of the, of the short story. Mm. And um, so you, so with, with your students, you would read 40 stories. And I imagine that's something which, um, was probably sort of whittled down from um, a uh, sort of a, a, a larger selection anyway. I mean, there's a sort of a, particularly pe- pe- people like Tolstoy wrote sort of um, huge amounts during their life. But um, I, I'm curious then for the selection of these seven stories for for your book, because at, at a moment you say, you know, these are not necessarily being presented as uh, perfect, flawless stories. In fact, uh, through some of the discussions of them, you go into the how some of the, the stories may be considered flawed or problematic or difficult in uh, in different ways. So would you be able to talk a little bit about the, the process of whittling down from the 40 
that you uh, teach with your students to the seven that we find? Sure. It was really just a process. You know, it, it was interesting because this is where I had to decide what the book was. So if it was going to be mm-hmm. a praise to the 10 best Russian short stories, that's one book. It's one that I'm not really qualified to write. Uh, I haven't read every Russian story and I'm, I'm not a scholar in that way. So in the end, I thought, okay, this is going to be um, a book about writing that uses some number of Russian stories as kind of, you know, bodies on the slab, you know, that we're just going to, we're just going to use mm-hmm. these stories to talk about the story form. So therefore you, you're looking for the ones I was looking for the ones that taught, that always taught the best, you know, the ones that always threw off sparks in the classroom. And, um, when I, when I really sort of was honest with myself, there was about 10, uh, that reliably throughout the semester would always, uh, light up the room. That was too many. I already have a 800 page book. Mm-hmm. So then I started to really bear down on that. Which ones of these, uh, have the deepest lessons and they don't have to be the best stories, as you said. And then at the very last phase, it was a matter of saying, okay, if I have two stories and my essays about those two are pretty much the same essay, we want to throw out one mm-hmm. of them, which is hard because some, you know, sure. I love all these stories. Um, so it was kind of a Rubik's cube, you know, which stories taught the best and then in which order could I put them so that my my part of the book also had a kind of escalation or had a kind of a shape to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So like everything I do, it's mostly just, I just do it over and over and over again, looking for the best combination. Mm -hmm. Your use of that word um, escalation there uh, brings me on to the the next question I wanted to ask was about the sort of the, um, the qualities of what makes a, a good short story. Um, And this was something that uh, I I was thinking a lot about when reading um, the book, because from from my own experience writing, uh, and people often find this quite strange, but I find this the short story form to be much more intimidating than the novel, in fact. And I, I, I suppose there's something because the novel perhaps allows for a little bit of raggedness or a little bit of sort of breathing room in a way that the that the short story doesn't. Whereas the sort of the short story seems to, um, yeah, seems to d- demand a lot more control and a lot more. Um, discipline, I guess, from the uh, from from the writer, and so I, I, so, so I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit about what you uh, what you think were sort of other qualities of a good short story, and particularly this concept of escalation that you you just mentioned. Right. Well, well, the one thing I'd say is you know the the story is an amazing form, and we always have to have a lot of respect for it. And so, you know, it's like to, to if you meet an amazing person. And you start laying down rules for that person, they're going to run right over them. So I think with the story that, mm-hmm. you know, that basic thing is humility, humility to say, look, if you can write eight pages and the reader gets through it at the end and is happy, you wrote a story. So part, part of this book is to say, I'm just going to confess my particular biases in this area. Uh, and for mm-hmm. me, I'm a big fan of the idea that a story is kind of like a joke. You know, a, a novel might be mm-hmm. an anecdote you tell on a long train ride to a friend, which is fairly generous and um, it, it's capacious and it allows for digressions and everything. The story is the joke you tell very quickly. And, you know, when you get to the end of a story, in my view of it, you kind of know whether it worked or not. It, it's either story or it isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a mysterious quality. It's kind of hard to articulate it. And you probably don't want to articulate it because then you'll, you'll ruin it. Um, but for me, it's just the idea that if, if I say, here, Adam, here's seven pages, I think you're going to like it immediately mm-hmm. there's some expectations enacted on your part, which is, okay, it's seven pages. So there's some reason that it's seven pages. It's not 80, it's seven. The, the punch must be packed in those seven pages. And then that in turn implies mm-hmm. that uh, the thing should be um, always gaining in power, always gaining in, in uh, import, uh, which mm-hmm. then implies in turn that there shouldn't be any waste. You know, there shouldn't be four pages that are just for fun. So it's a pretty, you know, a pretty draconian form, at least the way I see it. But that's what makes all the fun possible. You know, when, when you read a, sto- a short story mm-hmm. masterpiece, it's partly the, the sense of the ticking clock that makes it feel so vital, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That um, It's interesting you talk about that, um, that sort of the sense of mystery about what makes a, um, uh, a story or I guess a novel as well work. Because there seems to be, it seems to be um, a tension um, at the at the heart of the book, and probably I guess at the heart of teaching writing generally, which I'd like to explore a little bit, uh, is that sense that um, 
we can sort of almost reverse engineer these stories. And I think you do that a little bit in these books. So you discuss kind of what, uh, you know, what Tolstoy or what Turgenev or Chekhov or Gogol is doing and perhaps how they do it, while at the same time acknowledging that for you as a writer, and I think this is probably the case for more writers than care to admit it, it's a lot of the process is intuitive. You don't necessarily uh, know what you're doing when you're doing it. You don't necessarily uh, go in with a plan, or if you indeed going in with a plan can sometimes be um, a, uh, a disadvantage in a way. Um, and yeah, I'd like I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about about that tension between um, writing being something quite intuitive on the one hand and being something that can be sort of analyzed and unpicked and reverse engineered and indeed taught on the other. Right. And, you know, that this is funny because this question always comes up um, about a third of the way through the class when we've had a couple of good sessions of analyzing. Everybody's sort of revved up about that. And then somebody in the back of the room will say, wait a minute, though, how how is this analysis supposed to help our actual work? And that is a really mm-hmm. good question. And I always say, well, maybe maybe it doesn't. First of all, let's let's allow that. You know, maybe this is just a totally different activity. Um, and beyond that, I think. Uh, at least my experience of it has been that taking a story apart like this in this analytical way, if you can stomach it, you know, if you like it, it mm-hmm. does some kind of uh, transfer of certain kinds of, um, I'd say, wisdom, you know, certain kinds of information mm-hmm. into your artistic body in a way that I I don't really understand it, but I don't really care that much, you know. So in other words, it's sort of like mm-hmm. if you're a musician and you heard a song you liked uh, and it was just magical. You leave it alone a bit and then you learn the chords, you know, you learn the changes. Mm -hmm. And I think the idea is that somehow that transfers, um, certain moves into you. It also might just raise your bar somehow, you know, to have taken it apart and go, Mm -hmm. wow, look, look at how organized this is. It then gives your, um, artistic mind a message that, yeah, works of art really can be that organized. So now, however you get there, get there, but don't pretend that it, the organization isn't there, you know, so I think, I think all this stuff, mm-hmm. you know, especially teaching the, the students I teach who are so good, you always have to sort of, you know, I always say something very strongly and then I kind of go, unless it isn't, you know, <laughs> because there's no, there's no dogma yeah. to any of this. It's all just poking around and trying to help, you know. Mm-hmm. It's funny, actually, um, that sort of on, on the subject of kind of learning the moves there, you put me in mind of, um, Hunter Thompson, who said that he learned to write by typing out the Great Gatsby, so just sitting at his typewriter and literally copying it out. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it's a that's right. I think this analysis is kind of a form of that. And, it, and you know, the the one thing I always try to I try to make a disclaimer, which is, okay, so we're going to read Chekhov's The Darling. I'm going to point something out about mm-hmm. the structure that's really interesting and kind of undeniable. So two things: one, we really don't know how Chekhov arrived at that. He certainly didn't plan it out, I don't think, you know, or, 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 uh, diabolically pre-intend it. Um, second of all, it's really uncertain how we're going to use it. And I, I think a hundred percent, we're not going to go home and try to duplicate it because if you try, if you impose somebody else's move into your pre-existing story, there's something really inorganic about that. And it doesn't feel, uh, natural, you know? So I think a lot of, you know, mm-hmm. it's funny how much of this really is, is, um, a, a process of acknowledging mystery. But mystery mm-hmm. doesn't mean indeterminacy. You know, we, we, things can be mysterious and ambiguous sure. and difficult, but they still they still can be discovered. I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just as a, a little aside from the book at the moment, you mentioned um, your students um, a moment ago, and one thing that comes across very strongly in the book is um, how sort of nourishing you seem to find the the experience of teaching. I mean, a, a lot of writers. Um, find themselves teaching on creative writing courses over the world, and you know, I think I think it, they enjoy it to, to differing extents. From sort of you know, it's it pays the bills to uh, to you know, it can be quite a quite a stimulating experience. But from uh, from the way you write about it, it really seems that it's something which feeds not only into your sort of reading and your writing, but also also your life. Yes, I you know I probably started out thinking a little bit a little bit in the, it pays the bill camp, you know, when I first started teaching, but then, um, I don't know, there's Mm -hmm. something about, about being face to face with a room of 
young people who are just like you were, you know, at that point, you, they, they show up, mm-hmm. they've usually forsaken, you know, a more functional life <laughs> to be there with us, you know, and, um, they just, they just want to do this irrational thing that the culture doesn't really reward and they're looking to you for help, you know? So I think mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's deep then to say, okay, I'm going to, um, uh, try to help and, you know, there's different modalities of trying to help that we have. And some of them are, uh, you know, I, I guess I would say less mature. So in other words, my early modality mm-hmm. of trying to help was just correcting everything in their story the way I would do it and then kind of lecturing them about it. You know, here's how you should do it. Uh, <laughs> and then you see that that doesn't work for anybody. It makes you feel bad. It makes them feel bad. So then over the years, it, it really became a question of how how might I be helpful to somebody else, not just to writers, but in general, how how... Mm-hmm. Might I interact with somebody in such a way that would benefit them? And um, that inevitably inevitably becomes a question about, well, what are my presets in that way? You know, how, what do I think helps? And, um, and of course, you know, you find out that the most helpful thing is to listen, you know, to not be too mm-hmm. anxious about being active or don't be insecure about, about, you know, being inactive, but really try to listen to what they're saying. And then in the best world, you're not you know, it's almost like judo. You're not doing much. You're, 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 they're using, you're using their natural energy to lead them to their, mm-hmm. uh, you know, very individualized solution. So that's, that's a, it's anyway, that, yeah, I love teaching. I really have loved it. Um, yeah. I love the, um, the subject of that kind of, uh, individualized solution. Um, I think one of the, um, most moving parts of the book and one of the things that I think will speak to a lot of people who have, sort of set out on their own um, artistic journey, whether that be writing or, or any other art form, is um, that idea that um, we don't necessarily have any choice about what kind of writer or artist we will turn out to be. And very often the kind of writer and artist we are is not necessarily the kind of writer or artist we, we want to be. Mm. In fact, yes. um, and you 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 talk about um, the moment when when you had this realization. In, in fact, yeah, and we spend so much energy trying to you know force ourselves into the mold of our heroes, and and I think it's probably a, mm-hmm. a pretty good exercise to do to a point. And uh, you know, then I guess you get to that moment where you're so tired of faking it, and you're tired of having your actual experiences um, hard won, not be in your work, mm-hmm. you know, not be in the voice of your work, not be in the events of your work. So it, it's a pretty bittersweet thing, I think, because the first version of your new self is always a little bit, you know, uh, inconsiderable. Maybe it's just, you know, it's, um, mm-hmm. but I think, I think that's, you know, there's kind of, um, I guess two understandings of, of an artistic process and maybe of, of life processes. One is you decide and then you do it. You decide who you are and you be that person. You decide mm-hmm. which writer you are and you be that writer. And the other one is to say, well, uh, let's, you know, let's find out. I don't actually know who, uh, the optimal, optimal me would be. I don't know who the optimal mm-hmm. writing me would be. Then the question becomes, well, how do I, you know, how would I figure that out? And that's where it gets exciting to me because say in writing, you, you make some prose, uh, and then you revise it per your own taste. Uh, and if you're me, you do that obsessively, partly because the first draft is not really mm-hmm. very great um so that process is interesting because then by following your natural inclinations these sort of micro opinions that you have uh and and also the process of unearthing those micro opinions you know finding them and then trusting them it it actually leads Mm -hmm. you rather than you leading it it leads you uh and i found that really exciting because it means you don't ever have to well in a way you don't ever have to disappoint yourself because you don't have any expectations, you know, except to try to make something mm-hmm. as intense as you can. So to me, it was, it's been a kind of a long journey, but it started back with that, that moment you're talking about where I first kind of, uh, accidentally sounded like myself to mm-hmm. my chagrin. <laughs> <laughs> and if, and in fact, you, um, you write at the moment that one, one of the stories in this book, um, the, the singers, the, uh, the Turgenev story that you, um, one of the reasons you teach it is to kind of um, uh, illustrate to your students how how little choice we have about the the kind of writer that we'll end up being. 
Yeah, this story is always the uh, strategically placed to be the first buzzkill in the course. It's like, you know, everybody's really happy about Christian. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then you get to this Turgenev story and it's really old fashioned and really uh, pretty long winded. It's pleasurable, you know, but it's, but it's definitely full of these weird digressions. And he's got a very strange way of um, seeming to feel compelled to describe every single person in this saloon that he's writing about. And the students usually have a, a mild negative reaction to it or a strong negative reaction. Um, mm-hmm. But the point I make in the essay is that, you know, we, 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 I guess we all, you know, crave, or we think we should crave artistic perfection, the flawless story, Mm -hmm. but I don't know one of those, you know, every story has a little bit of bagginess or a little bit of, uh, it has qualities, you know, and those qualities, uh, are, are not going to always manifest in an orderly way. Just like people, you know, your, your friend Mm -hmm. is kind of belligerent and talks too much. Um, but he says some really smart things in the process and he really is, has a good heart. So part of you says, well, look, if you could just stop being belligerent and just be smart and have a good heart, that would be great. But obviously that's, that's going to, would require some brain surgery or something. You can't, you can't do that. So just like that, a story is going to be sometimes full of flaws. And the Tregenia story is an example of one that, uh, has flaws, but then somehow in the end, I argue it actually converts the flaws into virtues. So the, the doubts you've been having about mm-hmm. the story all along are kind of taken into account. But but it's always fun to walk into class mm-hmm. that day and, and see the students kind of looking at you like, oh boy, George has lost <laughs> it. You know, we, we have to try to talk, be very, talk very nicely today and don't hurt his feelings. And then as soon as somebody says, you know, I found it a little bit long-winded and I go, yeah, no kidding. Then, you know, there's a great sense of relief and mm-hmm. we're off to the races. Mm-hmm. Now, of um, of all of the seven stories, I'd actually only read one of them um, before, uh, which was the the goggle, uh, the nose. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe this says something about me as well. But of the seven as well, it, in a sense, it's one that kind of stands out. Um, in as much as the the Tolstoy, the Chekhov, the Turgenev are, to us, you know, broadly speaking, we might consider them realist stories. Um, and then you you come across the nose, and um, this is something which which sort of um, in a way uh, I was being familiar with your work. I was least surprised to find uh, this one in there than than the other six. But I'm I'm curious to know the uh, the sort of the the reaction of your students um, to this kind of this. Uh, this contrast, I guess, between these kind of these these quite sort of uh, social realist Russian stories, and then suddenly you get this very surreal story from Google. Yeah, well, they they love it, and we, I'll usually teach this one, and then the <laughs> overcoat, and there's a really crazy story called um, "How the Two Ivans Quarreled," and there's another one called "Nevsky Prospect," which is mm. really a, another example of a flawed yes, yeah, but yeah. really wonderful piece. Um, I, you know, it's funny, I. I can write about Chekhov and Tolstoy and Turgenev and Pushkin all day. It's, it's, I, I, as a sort mm-hmm. of critical mind, I really like realism. The Gogol gave me a lot of trouble, and and I, uh, mm-hmm. I, I love him so much, and I love uh, Dead Souls especially. Uh, I think he's really hard to pin down, but I, I put him in there mm-hmm. mostly because um, the, the the method that I'm extolling in this book is very sane and natural, but I wanted to make sure to point out that it doesn't apply to everything or, or it's a stretch to apply it to everything. Um, Mm -hmm. the same thing happened to me. I was teaching, um, uh, Sula by Toni Morrison and all of my usual critical Mm. chops failed me because it's such a magical book and it just won't, it won't reduce. It won't, it won't play by, the rules of, of straight line causality and, and efficiency. So I, I want, I sort of self-challenged, uh, I challenged myself to put this goal in there just to make sure that I didn't get too lazy on my, on my critiquing. Um, but in the end, I think it, you know, it, mm-hmm. I would say all fiction, uh, in the same way that music, Western music, even really crazy Western music, uh, works with the ex- expectation of tonality you know, of cro- of a chromatic mm-hmm. tonality. Um, writing works with an expectation of reality. And that's because language does. 
you know, we, we've developed this everyday language mm-hmm. that we use, which way is the bank? I have a headache. Um, it's very Darwinian. It's just to survive. So I think stories kind of on the first level, we expect them to look and act something like the real world. So even a story like the nose, which is mm-hmm. so crazy. I mean, the fact that we call it crazy because of its defiance of that ordinary stuff. But yeah, that's, it's a, it's a lovely, sure. crazy story. And I, I, I would go back and write that essay again and again. And I, I never quite figured him out. I don't think anybody can figure him out. Mm-hmm. I think one, one, one effect it has um, in the book as well is to kind of perhaps unseat the reader uh, from, from certain ideas that they, they perhaps sort of, or like I as a reader had sort of lapsed into, um, which was to sort of, when, when you're reading The Nose, there is a sort of sense, it's, it's clearly absurdist, and yet there is um, truth within mm-hmm. it. And that sort of then makes you wonder, okay, well, in that case, I've been reading these other stories, which are sort of, with their sort of, their realist perspective, have sort of the the assumption of truth is mm-hmm. is, is, is is almost a given from the beginning. So if if we can read something like Google and find truth in the absurdity, what does that do to our conception of the of truth or the real in uh, in these other stories we've been reading? No, that's a great point, and I think if, when you one of the things that analyzing them uh, showed me was that they're not very realistic. And, you know, none of them uh, play out mm-hmm. the way real life does. There's, they're way too packed with drama and there's constant choosing and excising and, um, you know, the deliberate uh, placement of incidents in proximity to make metaphorical meaning. So a realist story is just, I think it's actually in some ways um, quite sophisticated because it, it pretends you know, it, it makes a contract with us. I'm going to talk about this stuff in normal language in a way that makes mm-hmm. it sound like this is the real world. But but actually, there is no real world. I mean, you know, the the, um, mm-hmm. the way that our mind tells us the story of our life is to normalize it and actually make it pretty banal and pretty predictable. But in reality, uh, that's just a gauze that we stretch over experience. So I think I think the mm-hmm. uh, the Chekhov especially is so uh, beautifully um, – minimal and and everything is chosen to purpose and it certainly isn't a catalog or a you know a documentary so it, it should it should make us think uh i mean toby wolf said to me one time he said every story every good story is experimental so you know mm-hmm. every story struggles with the question of what this you know what is actually going on in the world and how should we process it and i think a story like gogol maybe does a little more deliberate uh kind of um, it, it goes a little further to remind us that the way things seem to us are not the way that they really are. Mm-hmm. Which is um, perhaps a sort of a useful tool to have in our toolkit as a reader, writer, but also for, for life more, yes. <laughs> more generally. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned earlier that you are a, um, a big uh, reviser, um, like your, your writing process is, you know, uh, a first draft, which you say is generally terrible. And then, you know, revise, 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 revise. Um, and I think that um, if if we were to take sort of one sort of rule of writing from this book, and this is certainly a book that sort of resists uh, sort of prescribing rules, but sort of revision uh, and, you know, over and over and over seems to be the one sort of uh, piece of sort of straightforward sort of unequivocal advice you would uh, you would give young writers. I think so, especially because most of us, when we first start, start out, are just simply not revising enough. There, there's that kind of mm-hmm. myth, you know, that that if you're a good writer, it just comes naturally out of you and you don't want to mess with the muse or the flow or whatever. But I think m- most of the writers I meet, and they're very, very good, um, are erring on the side of not revising quite enough. Now, I'm, I think I'm mm-hmm. starting to realize I'm a bit of a special case because it really does take me hundreds of drafts to get something Right. I don't, it shouldn't be that way, but mm-hmm. for some reason it is with me. So I'm sort of a proponent of this method, but maybe m- most people don't need quite as much of it as I do. But from what I can tell with my students, m- they can benefit from a little bit of it, you know? So in other words, if they, mm-hmm. um, I always encourage them to kind of cross the line and take a story and, and revise it almost intentionally too much, take it too far, spend too mm-hmm. much time on it. Um, choose and rechoose too much and once you cross that line you can always back over it but you, but at least you know then what mm-hmm. you 
you know, so because so, sometimes um, I think it was certainly true for me. You, you can find a voice by subtraction as much as you mm -hmm. can by addition. So if you write your kind of normal, sure. you know, 300 words in your voice, quote, unquote, in your voice, and then you cut it down to 150, sometimes you'll find a, a trace of a voice there that you haven't, did you actually can't do organically, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. It's, yeah. <laughs> one, um, one thing that um, uh, you, you talk about concerning revision, which is not something I think I've ever seen sort of written about before but it's certainly something which um which i which i have felt is that it's not it's not just revision for to make a sentence uh better sort of like stylistically for example it's sort of it's or, or rather in revising the sentence in improving the style in refining the uh idea that you're expressing making it making it more precise making it more um representative of of, of the intuition which um which you're following you're not only um sort of sort of tinkering with the the gears of the story you're actually sort of elevating the the story onto onto a different level um there's there's a term which you use i think it's in relation to tolstoy if i remember correctly of this sort of this idea of a sort of a supra personal wisdom so that to sort of that in fact you know, you talk about how Tolstoy was, you know, not necessarily the the best husband or father or um, or, or or employer, and yet within his his work, there's this sort of this wisdom, this 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 morality, which seemingly he he didn't didn't embody in his life. And now, one way of looking at that is to say, well, you know, okay, so Tolstoy had these ideas, and maybe he was a bit of a hypocrite. But the way you express it, which I find really fascinating, is that in this process of revising. In a sense, the the story becomes more intelligent and better than the writer. I, I think that's true, and I think you know we can even sort of take it off the plane of the philosophical and just think technically. Um, you know, a story starts out, and almost immediately, it's asking some kind of question. It's you know, um, so then the, so then the, the writer's job becomes, you know, be clear about what question the story is asking, and make it ask mm -hmm. it more aggressively, you know, don't, don't let the story get off the hook of the question it's asking. Um, another way of saying it is every sentence is a potential falsehood. You know, uh, mm -hmm. if you are simply trying to squeeze the falseness out of a sentence, I would say you're automatically de facto making the whole story more intelligent. So if, you know, and, and also mm -hmm. that goes with, with specificity, you know, if you have a, a sentence that's, that fails to be specific and you make it more specific but not too specific, you know, then suddenly the whole thing has come up a notch. So um, I, I don't know that it's really, it, it, I've, I just felt it over and over again that as you try to, uh, it, really, as you just pay attention to the object that is a story, you're naturally going to mm -hmm. make it more like itself. And um, then mm -hmm. the, the, the feeling for the writer after three or four or five months or two years on the same piece is that the thing has, refine itself out of triviality. It's not, it's not going off the path. It's, it's not servicing a question that it's not posing. Um, all of its parts are, are working together. And there's that, mm -hmm. you know, that slight feeling of, of everything going uphill a little bit, escalating or, or ascending. Um, and I, and so, mm -hmm. you know, for me, I've noticed that the difference between the first draft and the 80th is that the person who seems to be writing an 80th draft is more there, you know, he's more present, he's more intelligent, he's more alert. And, it's, and that's just because he's had all these chances to, you know, to, to squeeze the falsehood out of it. So that's crap. And, and this I seems, mean, um, yeah. this, this, this seems to be um, something obviously about writing better fiction, but it sort of, it doesn't seem to me sort of limited to that either. I mean, there's this sort of sense that sort of if, if, fiction can uh embody this sort of this this super personal wisdom if there is a sense that um uh in sort of uh revising and reworking something the sort of the what what the story gives us is something that is better and smarter and perhaps more more moral than the um than the writer themselves it sort of implies that fiction can be a a kind of a, a moral tool in a way, not that it necessarily 
should be or, or has to be or always will be. But there, I did get the feeling from reading your book that you, you do see that fic, that f- you do see fiction having a role in the sort of uh, the moral education sounds terribly nineteenth century um, in the kind of in, in, let's say in the sort of the the increase of empathy between um, b- between people, not just in a classroom, but in in the world at large. Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's one of those things you have to kind of tiptoe around it because obviously fiction has been great forever. There's been great fiction forever and the world has always been full of chaos and murder and everything. So, but but I do think just from my own experience, there's something rejuvenating about the idea that I'm sitting here in my house and I'm working on a paragraph, uh, basically with you mm-hmm. in mind, you know, somebody like you in mind, or actually it's me in mind if I hadn't read it before, but I'm thinking of somebody on the receiving end who's pretty smart and and pretty aware and uh, is there, you know, uh, I'm improving the paragraph in attempt to make a better communication with that person in the process. I also have to make a better, uh, communication with the characters. I have to regard them a little more attentively. So I, I would definitely say that that process of, you know, doing that for three or four hours a day, it, it's almost like, um, for me, it's been an exercise in courtesy. You know, when I was younger, I think mm-hmm. I, I was just, writing to inflict it on people, you know, to overpower them and, you know, <laughs> control, you know, uh, and then you think, well, that doesn't actually work. Nobody wants to read a, a work of fiction that's there to inflict something on them. Um, but, but if you're embodying this kind of courtesy, they're sitting by yourself in your room. I think it can, it has a potential, maybe if you make a point of it to extend outwards, um, as part of that larger job of becoming a you know, a full human being. But having said that, you know, there were great writers who were terrible people and there were wonderful people who Mm -hmm. were not good writers. And so it's, I think you have to be a little, a little careful about it. But I I do, I also think I've been reading some stuff on neurology and one of the really weird, intriguing things, if I'm not mangling this, is that the brain actually works that way. uh, And it actually works Mm -hmm. from the back of the brain to the front of the brain. The back of the brain makes a rough model of the moment that you're in based on sensory data. But mostly it's using um, file file photos, you know, from from your past. Then as, yeah. it, as it moves through your brain, you're, you're editing it and revising it based on sensory data coming in. So that near the front of your brain, mm-hmm. as I understand it, you've got uh, the best version of the moment, which then you live. And you, you, you're often wrong anyway. Mm-hmm. But, but so there's something funny about the fact that that's so much like what we do when we write. And I, I don't know what that means, except maybe that's why it's pleasurable because it's it's mimicking something that's happening on a deeper level mm. because that's um i think important to stress as well i think probably in my previous question i kind of implied that sort of the um the the role of fiction could potentially be seen as sort of instructive for the reader but i think also one thing we get a very strong sense of is the way writing and revising and reading has had a had an effect on the way that you apprehend the world and the way that you engage with the world and the way that you engage with other people um when i when i was talking earlier about i asked you about the the original conception of um of the book and that was sort of um you know throwing one of your own phrases back at you because you talk about sort of removing or to get us getting a story out of its the plane of its original conception so sort of we come into uh, a piece of writing with an idea of what we want to do, but we need to be sort of uh, open to, to to the story doing other things because that's kind of where where the magic works. And that sort of seems to me, um, if if one sort of practices that, that it will sort of bleed over into um, into one's life with the way that sort of one apprehends the world. No, exactly. Because I think, you know, we... we um... You, you, that, that quote is sort of a, a, a mangling of something that Einstein said, you know, no, no worthy problem is ever solved in the plane of its original conception. So in a certain way, you know, mm-hmm. we, everything we do, we, the best we can do is make a scale model of, of the moment we're in or the, you know, and, and so um, we go out with into the world with that model in place. And of course it's not right because the world is so vast and our mind is just a little Darwinian, you know, model maker. Uh, so mm-hmm. then the question is what happens next? You know, do you, do you insist that your, your scale model is correct? 
and become a fundamental, you know, like a terrorist or something, or do you, or, or even a mini terrorist, or do you say, oh yeah, okay. So something about this moment is, is telling me that I haven't conceived it. Right. That's okay. I, I can revise. I can, I can fix it. So this idea of, of curiosity and playfulness to say, you know, I'm, I'm really in trouble here because I'm a person with a two, I've got a, basically a, a brain on a stick, you know, a brain on a spine. Uh, that mm -hmm. brain is always making inadequate scale models of the world. And I'm going out into the world with those models in place. Oh boy. You know, uh, what an occasion for humility, mm -hmm. but in the same way that when you start a story, you know what it's about. And if the story says, I'm not about that, then you're at a pretty important crossroads, which is either I'm going to insist that you are about that dear story and ruin you, or I'm going to say, okay, well, all right, sure. T tell me what you are about. So I think that, that part of it, um, I would say that all this writing I've done has made me super confident of two of two things of the the, uh, the wisdom of, the, of what I call the subconscious. That's probably not the right term, but the wisdom of this intuitive mm -hmm. state that we are we have access to. And second of all, is just the mutability of things. If you are in the, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm working on a story right now that I thought was done and I got to the last three pages this morning and it's not. All right. That's okay. Uh -huh. You know, I, I, I would have sworn by it last night. I was mm -hmm. so excited about it and it's just not, that's okay. So likewise, I think we have that, uh, the superpower of, of being able to, um, accept, uh, contradiction and correction from the world in a spirit that isn't mm -hmm. oppositional, but it's kind of happy, happy to be corrected, you know, mm -hmm. something like that. Which feels like a very, um, kind of pertinent, um, way to respond to, to, to a lot of how the, how the world has developed. I, I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's always been like that, but it feels particularly over the last 10 to 15 years with sort of, you know, a, a lot of entrenched opinions, you know, people mm. sort of um, dividing into camps and then sort of just defending the, uh, the sort of the, the integrity of that camp's views uh, against all sort of um, all questioning. Um, yeah. And bef before we finish, I, I, it would, in a sense, it would be remiss of me not to ask um, about the the current situation um, in the United States because last time we we met, um, it was March 2017, so it was more or less exactly four years ago, and um, so obviously President Trump had just been inaugurated, and towards the end of um, of our conversation. Uh, you were talking a little bit about uh, perhaps the work that um, that uh, people who consider themselves liberals perhaps needed to do um, to 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 fight um, what was happening and also to 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 understand why why it had happened. And um, one of the things you you encouraged people to do was to to turn to literature, to turn to books, to turn to um, other people's um, opinions, other viewpoints, um, to, to 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 develop empathy, um, and so now four years on, um, you know, a few weeks after another inauguration, um, I'm just curious to to know if you think some or any of that work has been done, um, and how generally you're feeling about the um, the country you're, you find yourself in now. Uh, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, have some, <laughs> I mean, it's what I think about pretty much all, all day, every day. I, the, the one thing I, I would say is we should be a little bit, um, well, we should just observe that. I think that work was done. In other words, at, when I was in Paris last time, there was a lot of talk here, kind of first draft talk, I would say about how Trumpism was all about the, uh, forgotten middle and lower middle class. And that's, that is partly true. But since that time, through thousands of, you know, hundreds of millions of thousands of words of, of essays and punditry and all that, um, the, the view has become more sophisticated and, and more complicated that certainly it's, it's has, it has something to do with income inequality. It also has a lot to do with racism and with racial nostalgia and all mm -hmm. these things. So I, I would just say it broadly, the system has kind of done its job, which is, um, this thing happened that if you're like me, it surprised you. And for someone who's a, a fiction writer or novelist or whatever, to be surprised by the world is actually, I, I feel it's a, just a sign of shortcoming. You know, I, I, that's on me that I didn't see Trumpism mm -hmm. coming. Uh, then you quickly try to go, okay, th there is a world 
and that world has this in it. Therefore, I better come around to understanding it, not blessing or enabling it, but understanding it. And I think we, the world, the, America has done a pretty good job of trying to catch up with these things. Uh, unfortunately, it's still happening and it's happening faster and weirder than I ever would have imagined, you know, with the, the Capitol um, riot and, and the response of the Republicans to that, which has been the kind of shrug, you know. So honestly, mm-hmm. at this point, I'm just, I'm writing a lot of fiction and I'm trying to, in my public life and also in my private mind, just just keep saying, I really don't know. I really don't know. Because mm-hmm. the um, one of my problems is I, you know, will we'll make a solution in my head. And then, of course, that'll get proven wrong. So I'm, try- I'm trying to just stay open to it and try to observe. Sure. You know, I have a lot of people uh, in my extended family and friends that, that are Trump supporters. And so I'm trying to get better at listening without trying to uh, persuade or because I can't, and I've never persuaded anybody. So I'm just in the phase mm-hmm. of trying to just listen and recognize that something really kind of terrible is happening here and, and new, uh, but also probably mm-hmm. not that new, probably old also, you know, so, so anyway, I don't have yeah. an answer really, except, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, George, I hope we don't have to wait until the, after the next inauguration to, um, to speak again, to, to welcome you back to, um, to Paris and to Shakespeare and company. Um, I'd like to thank you for, you for your time today and to thank you for a, um, a swim in a pond in the rain, which is, I say, a truly, truly remarkable book. I mean, it's a cliche to say that, um, you know, a book is unique and I, because all books are, are unique um, uh, in, in as much as they, you know, they come from, from a unique mind. But I think there's something about um, a swim in a pond in the rain which um, does things i've never seen a book do before and um i can only say i think uh, it's gonna it's a very enriching um very improving reading experience so thank you so much for that well thank you adam and you know i i i want to thank you for the beautiful questions and also to say um you know one of the the treasured memories i have of that paris trip and there were so many is uh my talks with you because you're and i remember coming home thinking that is an incredibly intelligent person and it's Nice to have that memory uh, reawakened. So thank you. Oh, that's very kind of you. We'll probably have to cut this for my own uh, modesty. But... <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> I insist. <laughs> no, but thank you so much. Cheers, George. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to some of your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple or Patreon for just three euros a month. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by our resident jazz supremo, Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. I'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.